Well, it's good to see you, everybody. And uh, in fact, it's so good to see you. I'm going to turn my mic on just a second. It's been uh, it's been a good week when I was away, but it's I uh, missed you as always. And uh, it's good to be back. At least most of me's back. Part of me's still flying around in a Delta airline plane around here somewhere where I got this cold. So, uh, but I, I won't infect any of the rest of you. Uh, it is good to be here today, and. Um, I think somebody used my mic and put it on mute, maybe, huh? Yep. Um, yeah, there we are. No, see, that sounds really good. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Um, we, uh, I, I just want to reiterate something that uh, Jocelyn and, and, and Ken were talking about, and if you're not a note taker, either make a mental note of this, put it in your phone. Uh, write it down if you are a note taker. Matthew 9, 38. That's the story where Jesus sees the crowds, he sees the culture, he sees the people just kind of getting beat up by every wind of doctrine and crazy stuff going on. And he has not anger, but compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he turns to the disciples, and this is where verse 38 comes in. He says, this is so ripe for, for reaching these people for God, but there's nobody to do it. So pray and ask God to send laborers into this field. And so Jesus ex tells us to pray an exact prayer, and I'm asking you and me together over the next many months to pray the prayer and say, God, would you send laborers for the new lives that are going to change, and I'm specifically talking about the new young lives. As we build that elevator, it's not just about elevators. It's about changing lives through the ministry that goes on down in that wing, okay? or down in the basement, whether it be uh, real young people or whether it be you know, high school people or middle school people. Just, let's just pray together about that, okay? Uh, both in terms of the resources to do the ministry God's put right in front of our face or uh, in terms of um, you know, people to do the ministry and to, ha to help just you know, in the class. And if, you, if you're wondering what goes on down there, if you haven't been down there lately, like on a Sunday morning, go down the hallway and see these lives. They'll be an inspiration to you. And, and you may say, well, if I go down there, uh, an angel might jump on me and say, you know what, you should be teaching down here. Eh, it's not the end of the world. So, but uh, that's not even why we're asking you to do this. We're asking us to all together pray and, and ask God to send us uh, the, the people and the, the resources we need to, to, to do these things that we're certain that he's asked us to do. It's a very exciting time to be at Eastridge Church. So that's what uh, I just want to put my two, two cents in and, and give my support to that. But today, uh, we're coming, sort of coming to the apex. This is, this is what the uh, Pack Your Bag series about what's next was really about. This, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come clean on the pastor thing here. One of my jobs uh, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip you for what's next. In fact, I have to answer for it in eternity. So do a good job, because, I mean, otherwise, I might have some problems. So, uh, but but here's, here's the theme of the day, really. Have you ever wondered what's next for Christians in our city, in our country, in our culture? <laughs> Just about every day, Dwayne, but, but really... How are we supposed to navigate that? How are we supposed to live in that? It really, um, where are we supposed to go with that? Just, just, I want to give you one illustration of what happens in a society, in a culture, when we unhook ourselves from God, when we push God completely out of the picture. It's, it's a process called secularization. And, and just one caveat here to maybe get you to relax a little bit. Um, 
uh, particularly if you're, you're not sure you're a Christian or you're, you're a different kind of Christian that doesn't ask these kind of questions, uh, you're in a safe place, uh, and at least you're going to understand why we Christians, uh, you know, talk about this and flip out about it from time to time. But for, for the rest of us, I don't think we're all the way there yet to full secularization. God could still do a revival, still do a renewal. He's done it before. But uh, we seem to be on that path of unhooking ourselves from God completely, from our creator God most specifically, as we've seen as we've uh, moved through the original story of God starting in Genesis. But I just want to see, show you kind of one sort of fun, humorous example that happened this week. I want to show you a picture of this, this guy right here. This is Naruto. And Naruto is an Indonesian macaque monkey. I don't think anybody really knows where he is right now, but he's in Indonesia jungle somewhere if he's still alive. And this photo was taken by Naruto himself when he picked up a, uh, a uh, wildlife photographer's phone, a guy named David Steckley, I think his name is, and, and uh, they picked up his phone and started taking selfies of himself either on purpose or he was just monkeying around. Uh, okay, so, so he, he, he takes these pictures. So Stuckley says, this is cool, this is perfect. So he starts coming home, he starts selling this picture. That's how he makes his living. Well, PETA, people, eth call, uh, what they people for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, got a hold of that, and they thought this was wrong. They felt that, you know what? Naruto's a person too. And so they went to court. And this thing's been going through the courts for seven years. Finally, the Ninth Court, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court, which is down in San Francisco, it's the West Coast uh, uh, Court that's just below the U.S. Supreme Court. And they're, they'll, they'll tell you they're the most liberal or left-leaning court. So, you know, they took this case, and PETA specifically wanted to get it to them. They took this case. So a, th a three-judge panel took this case, and they came down with their verdict today. And they said, look, we have to follow the Constitution on this one. He's not a person, you know? He's an animal. Okay, well, but we're all animals. No, he's not a human being. Sorry. According to the, and it was kind of embarrassing for Peter, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I'm not trying to, well, maybe I am. You make fun of Peter a little bit. Uh, but that's the tendency of the, uh, that's the tendency of a society that has unhooked itself from God as our creator, who is the one who placed, remember, the Imago Dei, the image of God in us, and that's how we decipher what, you know, what, what is right and wrong and who has rights and who doesn't. That doesn't mean that Christians have any inkling at all or should at all about, you know, treating animals unkindly or unfairly or hurting them. That's not the deal. The deal is, is they are not human beings. And God has made that distinction with his image in us. But a society that's completely unhooked themselves from that, don't want that in the story around, you know, let's rewrite history, let's change all that, it gets very confusing. Because somebody's got to come up to, with answers to these questions. And so it runs through the court, which is, which is kind of humorous too. This is kind of the, the sad but humorous thing at the same time. What in the world is the Ninth Circuit Court doing picking up a case like this? Right? I mean, who, who, who's, who's decided it was even a question, which is how... Peter's kind of playing it out now. See, it's a real question, at least. But here, that, you know, that's just one example. I know there's more serious examples. There's a, I, I, you know, you, you hear about curriculums like the one that's going in in Massachusetts now, but it's coming to a school near you because it's already in Washington State where, you know, children are being taught about, you know, marriage can be, 
two men and two women and all this kind of stuff. You know, again, unhooking ourselves from the biblical men, uh, teaching from the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the marriage is between a man and a woman for life and all, all of that stuff. And again, we're not looking to rip anybody or change any of that, but, but you know, those, that, that's an assault on Christian belief. Or, or like down in California where now, if you try to publish a book or sell a podcast or anything like that, there's, there's, a, there's a law on, uh, running through the California legislature that says, uh, you know, if you, if you say any other definition of human sexuality than the one that's being rewritten and promoted now, then therefore you cannot publish that book, you cannot sell that book, you cannot do that talk, do that sort of thing. Uh, whether it makes it or not, I don't know. But, but even that, the big bad culture out there, the, big, the, you know, the, the, the secularization uh, of the world, that's not the elephant in the room I'm trying to address today. And you may say, what elephant? You know, you're, you're, you're just seeing, you know, unicorns and sheep skipping through the happiest place on earth, Happy Valley. Maybe that's what you're seeing. But you're feeling, I'm almost certain you're feeling the elephant sitting down right now. And the elephant is this. It's not the big bad, that's not news, not the big bad culture. It's what are we Christians supposed to do if that's what's next? If that keeps going, and religious liberty and, you know, just sort of a, an ethic and a morality that has been around for centuries, and, and you know, God put it in place, and as, as if we're the first people in the world to discover ethics and morality and completely rewriting it, then, you know, if that happens, how are we supposed to live? That's the elephant in the room. That's why we want to come to the story today uh, of a man named Elijah. And... Um, it, it, what we're going to see here is maybe a better question for God's people to ask when we come to times such as these, a secular age, coming into a secular age, a question might be, what is it or who is it that we are worshiping really? You know, in our practical lives, in our daily lives, who is it, who is it that we are worshiping? Because it always seems to center on that. Let me, let me tell you what I mean uh, in this story of Elijah. And um, I'm going to start back where Chris did last week. He did a great job talking about David's epic fail uh, with Bathsheba, and he brought in Solomon and all of those sorts of things. <clears throat> and uh, uh, by the way, I apologize if uh, listening to me makes you want to clear your throat. But it's, it'll be all right. Uh, I have never lost my voice before. Um, but but, but um, back to uh, more important things. The, we, we've been reading through the original story of God, and we've come up to the kings. We've gotten through Samuel last week, and we're coming into the, the books called First and Second Kings. And what has happened since David and Solomon is, you know, David had a great reign. Solomon had an even greater, more uh, lucrative reign. I mean, he, he expanded the country. Then everything blew apart probably because of their lousy family experience, probably because of David and Solomon's horrible parenting or something, I don't know, at least in part. But it blew apart into two sections. In the north, there was a country called Israel, and it had 10 of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. In the south, it was Judah, it had two tribes uh, of the tribe, 12 tribes of Israel. And so these, these two are kind of going at each other, but, but more uh, differently, they're, they're going out, you know, they'll go at each other, but then they'll go out to countries uh, around them. And uh, a, a couple hundred years into that, a guy by the name of Ahab, not Captain Ahab, that's Moby Dick, but Ahab was king of, um, of Israel. And, and I got to tell you, from reading the biblical text, I mean, you, you get the feeling like, you know, he could have been called sniveling. I mean, because, because 
just kind of a sniveling king, okay? Because one, one example of this is he married a woman who was a Sidonian, so she wasn't uh, a Jewish person. She wasn't a Hebrew, uh, which, you know, God says, you know, don't intermingle with people that worship other, other uh, gods. Well, Ahab had already kind of dished off God, Yahweh, and so he marries this woman to make this, you know, treaty with uh, the king of Sidon, and she brings with her her own gods, and so, so she kind of changed the whole thing. In fact, there's this one particular God that she loved so much. In fact, it was a very important God in, in all the pagan world back then in those days. And so she came to Ahab and said, come on, Kingy Poo, let's make this our God. Come on, come on. And so he does. And the God is named Baal. Maybe you've heard of Baal. Or sometimes it's pronounced Baal, okay? It was the fertility God. It was the God of uh, not just, uh, pro, uh, you know, procreation, but it was the, the God of of, of dirt and rain and, and, and growing crops and all those things. And you can see why that kind of thing was a big deal to these people. Of course, um, you know, God Yahweh had control all over that too, and he had already shown them that. But they'd, they walked away from that and, and set up all these high places and, and worshiped Baal. Well, in the midst of all this, there's this guy by the name of Elijah who winds up being one of the greatest prophets. And, and he, he has come and said, you know, God's going to judge you, and, and, and one of the ways he's going to judge you is he's going to put a famine on the land for seven years. And that's exactly what happens. So what does Ahab do? Instead of rethinking his position, he blames the messenger. He goes out and tries to kill Elijah. But Elijah is really good. I mean, he's living in the desert, you know, uh, God's feeding him. Uh, you know, I suppose he's like John the Baptist, locusts and honey and all that kind of stuff. And, and he's living out there, and, and Ahab can't find him. But then he one day sets up a meet. He calls Obadiah, which is a servant of, uh, his name's in our Bible too, uh, is a servant of, of Ahab, and, uh, he, but he's a follower of Yahweh. So he meets, Elijah meets Obadiah and says, hey, go tell Ahab, I'll meet him, but it's on Mount Carmel. And uh, I want you to bring the 450 prophets of Baal. And uh, or, or, actually, he, he goes and tells Ahab this, because Ahab does meet him. Um, and he says, I, I want you to go to Mount Carmel, bring your 450 prophets of Baal, and then we'll just see whose God is for real by uh, sacrificing a bull on the altar up there. Mount Carmel is still around today, by the way. It's the city that the city of Haifa in Israel is built on. But they, they go up to the top of Mount Carmel, and um, uh, it, it's kind of a, a funny but tragic story all at the same time. So these 400 prophets of Baal, they, they split the bull in half, put it on the altar, and, uh, said the, and Elijah says, okay, the rule is of the game here is whose God can call down fire from heaven on this altar? And so he says, you guys go first. So there's 450 of them, one of him, and they're dancing around and they're cutting themselves, and this is where it kind of gets humorous. He says, hey, you know, about after hours, like a whole morning of this, uh, uh, Elijah says, maybe your God is sleeping. You need to go wake him up. Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe he's really resting. He's in the bathroom. I mean, go for that, you know, and, and he's just mocking these guys, and he says, I think you need to yell louder because I think he might be getting deaf. He's so old, but I can't, can't really handle it. And, um, and then after, in the afternoon, when these guys have just exhausted themselves, he says, okay, enough. And so, so uh, Elijah comes forward and he says, okay, I want you to take jars and jars and jars of water, and I want you to douse this thing, and I want you to dig a trench, and I want you to fill the trench with water, and then we're going to see if God Yahweh can, can come down and, and lick all this stuff up. And so he, he, as he's standing there, everybody's you know, thinking, man, what, what kind of a crazy prophet is this? And here's what happens. Here's, here's, what, here's what Elijah says. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, 
Let it be known today that you are the God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that I'll look really good. Nope. So that Ahab won't kill me. Nope. So that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. I mean, isn't that powerful? I mean, that's the big issue. This is a guy who's living his life for that purpose and that reason, and so that's what he asked God for. Well, what happens is fire does come down, and it licks up the whole thing, all the water and everything, you just, that's that's water sizzling. It just sucks it all up. It's just an amazing, amazing story. And then Elijah has the prophets of Baal all killed by the sword, But the question that arises today is, um, what does it mean to to live as a Christian, uh, as a God follower, in a world that has rejected that, that is antagonistic to it? Because that's where Elijah was living, okay? That's the world he was in. And and in other parlance or in other language, and, and biblical language really, what does it mean to live prophetically, you know? What does it mean to walk prophetically? You know, I remember back, this is years ago, I think it was early 2000s, the Blazers had an Egyptian on their team, and they put out this big thing about, you know, walk like an Egyptian. Remember that? Never mind if you don't. So, um, but, you know, I think what this is telling us is walk like a Hebrew prophet, an ancient Hebrew prophet. But to try and get to this story, you can open your Bibles to um, 1 Kings 19, because this, this story has been misinterpreted after this big, you know, epic, amazing win for God on the top of Mount Carmel. You know, all of a sudden it looks like Elijah gets a little spooked and afraid and he runs away. And that's how your Bibles and my Bibles translate it, okay? And so uh, just as you're opening it, let me just give you two points that we would call hermeneutical things to think about. That's, don't let hermeneutical freak you out. The first time I heard that word in seminary, we looked at the professor and said, Herman who? Um, it just means Bible study methods. Okay, digging deeper into the Bible. Let me give you two a little deeper digs into this story, beginning uh, with verse 3 of chapter 19. Here's how the NIV does it. Uh, the, the English Standard does it this way. The New American Standard does it this way. The only Bible that doesn't do it this way is the King James, interestingly enough. But here's what it says. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to Beersheba. So Beersheba's down in the Sinai Desert in the south. In Judah, he left his servant there, okay? So it says that Elijah runs away. Why? Because we'll see in a minute, Jezebel's going to kill him for killing all those prophets. He said, you know, you messed with my God, I'm going to kill you. And so, um, so interpreters have used this word, uh, or interpreted this word afraid, that, that he's running afraid. In other words, you know, um, Elijah's having these, these issues, these problems. Here's what I think is happening, and I've done this too in many sermons, uh, but I've changed my mind, so I'm, I'm kind of laying it out before you, and you can decide whether or not you think I'm right this time or not. But, you know, you can, you can have the other opinion. Of course, you'd be wrong. But, I mean, that, that, no, <laughs> no I, I've come to a new light here. In fact, if you look in your, in your NIV Bible, there's a little footnote next to afraid, and at the bottom it says, or to see, that, or, or, or that he saw. And, and let me show you why that says that. There's two Hebrew words here in, 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 in manuscripts. The oldest ones have a word that's ra'ah, okay? 
And that the, the, the other ones since the time of Jesus or uh, since, you know, a number of years later have, have a word in there called yar. Now, in English, they look very similar but, because of the letters are the same. But in, in the ancient Hebrew, they look a lot similar. Okay, so you can kind of see how somebody would mix this up. But translators always say, you know, there's sort of translation rules, right, principles, and they're really great until they're not really great. And, um, and, and one of those rules is that if you have a hard word to translate, look at the context of the story, and that'll lead you into the proper translation. Well, this one makes it look, because Elijah's definitely running. You, you could, if, if you take a modern-day psychotherapeutic, you know, uh, you know, NCIS profiling thing and lay it on the prophets, which, by the way, is a really bad to take our psychology and our ideas and lay it on the Old Testament because the, they didn't think this way. So, but, but it would be, it's real easy to say, well, well of course, uh, Elijah's having a mental breakdown and he's afraid. Don't think he's afraid. I think instead that the word is supposed to be he saw. He saw what Jezebel was up to, and he wasn't allowed, about to let her get away with an, a victory over Yahweh God by killing him. He wanted to die, but if anybody's going to kill him, it's going to be God himself. That's what I think this is about. You, we'll let you see it as the story goes on if you think this is right. But just a little interesting factoid here. I have a friend, a very dear friend, who he lives in Illinois. He's a pastor. He's getting his Ph.D. in that first word, ra'ah, to see. <laughs> He's looking at the 800 times it shows up in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. How'd you like that for some fun? And so I texted him, or I emailed him this week and said, hey, what about Ra'ah in uh, 1 Kings 19.3? You got any material on that or anything? He came back, he said, yeah, I, th I go with, I go with uh, to see. I think that's probably right, and it's in a note in the NIV. And here's some material from some other professors and so forth. And boom, mic drop, I was right. So there, there we go. But... <clears throat> But the second thing kind of follows up right alongside it. As you start looking at the map of where Elijah is going and how this all works. Because look at verse 8. He doesn't just stay in Beersheba. The angel of the Lord comes and feeds him twice. Because, quote unquote, you need the energy. Because you got a long journey ahead of you. I'm just in Beersheba. No, you got a long journey. Here's what it says. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened up by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, which, by the way, is Sinai, where Moses got the Ten Commandments. The mountain of God. So here's the thing. I don't think he's running from Jezebel. I think he's running to God. This isn't panic. You know, when we face this kind of stuff in the world, we, this is not panic. There's a plan for this. He's, he's got a plan. In fact, look at this map. I want to just show you something real quick. Here's a... Did I just... There, all right. Uh, this is Jezreel up in northern Israel. That's where Ahab and Jezebel were. He ran down here to Beersheba, right there. And, and, and Beersheba... Uh, is like 100 miles away from them. And in those days, you know, no planes, no cars, nobody. 100 miles away is plenty of places to hide and get away from them if, if you're worried about somebody killing you. But he goes all the way down here to Mount Sinai. Why? I mean, a, a modern-day uh, Oregon illustration would be if Jezebel is in Portland, you know, it was just that hard to believe. But I mean, Jezebel's in Portland. You know, you're, you're a prophet and you're running away. You go to Eugene. It's about 90-some miles almost uh, 100 miles, you know, Elijah goes down there, takes in a duck game, you know, and, and, 
you know, that's fine. That's a plenty of distance. But instead, he goes all the way to Mount Shasta, 365 miles, which is about what this is. And you go, why did you do that? Well, maybe because it was part of God's plan. And maybe because God called him to it. And, and here's the thing about uh, this whole story in, in uh, 1 Kings 19. I'll admit to you that I'm kind of, I'm not defending Elijah just because I like him, but I'm, he is my favorite prophet, and this is my favorite story. Uh, but, but he wasn't just my favorite prophet. During the times of Jesus, everybody thought John the Baptist was Elijah, and then uh, Jesus was Elijah returned, because he was one of the greatest prophets. By the time you get to Re- Revelation, who shows up? Elijah and Moses. Who shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses, right? So this, these guys aren't known for, you know, cutting and running. And, and it, but, but here's the beautiful thing about uh, this whole story for us, and I'm going to go through the rest of these very quickly. But what we get here is five lessons on how to live prophetically in a world that's antagonistic towards your faith, in a, in a world that's kind of after you on that. And if that ever comes, I don't know. Will it come to I don't know. Will it be in our lifetime? I don't know. But, but, but I do know that there's a plan. There's a way. There's no need for panic. There's no, no need for running away. So with that context, let me just start into these five, beginning at verse 1 of 1 Kings 19. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel, he killed all my prophets, uh, everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets by, with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life that of one of them. In other words, if I don't kill you too. Now here's, here's the crazy thing. Jezebel, Elijah, all of Israel had stood there and they had seen Evidence before their very eyes that there is a God and he sent down fire and he's had enough, right? Right in front of their very eyes. But that evidence wasn't enough to turn their hearts. Isn't that interesting? I was reminded of this yesterday when I was thinking about how to, what a beautiful place we live in. We talked about this when we were in Genesis 1 to 3. God's created this beautiful place and the trees and the ocean and the mountains and all this kind of stuff. Every single day, as Romans 1 says, we're reminded that there is a God, right? Every day. And yet, uh, I was at the annual meeting for our conference, the Pacific Northwest Conference on, on uh, uh, Friday, and, and our, our superintendent, our brother and good friend, uh, Greg Yee, uh, got up, and he was uh, talking to us pastors and teaching us a little bit, and he says, hey, what I want you to do is make sure you remain in prayer and stick with God, because I know it's getting steeper to do ministry in, in the Pacific Northwest. In fact, he mentioned, you know, Portland, they came out with that new survey. Portland is, is the number four least church, least Christian city in America. Seattle's right behind them at number five. We finally beat Seattle at something, you know. And, and, and so, you know, he, he brought that up. He said, but that's, that's not the issue. It's, it's, it's who our God is. And I was, I was very blessed by that. But, but the reality is, is you can have all kinds of evidence in front of your face, you know, it's, it's a failing or a, a propensity of what has happened in a fallen world. We tend not to believe the evidence before our eyes. I mean, there's new evidence now. In fact, there's a Hulu show on now. I can't recommend you watch it, but 
There's all kinds of uh, information about what happened to 9-11. The FBI knew that these guys were taking flight lessons. The CIA knew that they were in the country and that they had terrorist connections. They knew that bin Laden had bombed uh, the USS Cole. They knew all this kind of stuff, and nobody talked to each other because nobody believed the evidence. It's just a fallen human being propensity not to believe. Even evidence like this, especially evidence, I suppose, uh, about a God. But here's the deal. Here's the wonderful deal. We believe in apologetics in this church. What is apologetics? It's the defense of the faith by simply putting forth the evidence, okay? But here's the thing. God, evidence of God is great, but God is greater. We've always got to remember that. That's the first lesson. Evidence of God, is, that's great, but God himself is greater than the evidence. It takes him to break through and to change minds and hearts. You know, no matter, it's not up to us, no matter how good we are at saying it and how good we are at doing it, you know, maybe even good we are at living it, the evidence is right there, but, but it's up to God to change and transform hearts. You see what I mean? That, that, that's, I think, a lesson that we, we get from this. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing. Evidence uh, of God, you know, apologetics, can not only break down strongholds in people's minds and hearts, but it cuts the other way too for those of us who already believe, who've seen the evidence of, say, Jesus' resurrection like we did on Easter and have had our hearts changed, right? Because if that happened, then you know it's a, the evidence toward the, the, the miracles makes a little more sense. But, but what, you, what you learn as a Christian as you go on and on and on, that we are based in actual events, we are based in things that can be shown to be likely true and all this kind of stuff, but there are some things along the way that God will ask us to believe that we're not meant to understand. And I'm not saying, you know, uh, don't pray for those miracles that you need in your life. I'm saying that when they don't come, there's reasons, but that God is still always good. God is still God. And, and, and we can trust him in that because of the evidence we've seen along the way, yes, but more importantly because he's speaking to our hearts, okay? And in Jezebel's case, uh, he wasn't speaking to her heart, because, or Ahab's case, because they had not believed him. Skip down to uh, verse 9 for the second lesson. This is said twice. Uh, there, from Horeb, he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him here at God's mountain. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, for years and years and years, people have thought, well, this is God's rebuke of Elijah for running away, should have never run away, and so forth. I just, again, I don't think that's what this is. Because you could completely interpret this differently. And in fact, here's what I think is happening. It's the second principle, second lesson of how to live prophetically in a world that doesn't, you know, it rejects God. God is tender toward discouragement in his servants caused by this broken world. I think he's coming to Elijah saying, hey, I get, I know, I know you're, you're, you're busted up on this. I, I understand. But he's given, he's given Elijah a chance to tell him. He's given Elijah, he's, he's inviting Elijah into a conversation to unburden his soul, if you will. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that, he says, God is your heavenly father. You can approach him like a father. You can approach him like Abba, father who art in heaven. Right? I mean, that was the name for dad, for father, and it's still used in the Middle East today, across several cultures. And Jesus says, you know, look, my burden, you know, I'm not telling you you'll have a burden-free life. I'm just telling you my burden is light and my way is easy because there's two, two uh, holes in the yoke, like the oxen yoke. 
I'll come alongside one, you come into the other, and we're, we're going to pull this thing together. And so there's a, there's a sense of tenderness if, in fact, we're discouraged about the things that should discourage us about. You know, the, 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 we're, we're serving the Lord, and we, you know, I think Elijah's just had it, you know? He's done with this. This is, this is getting nowhere. I'm done being a prophet. Take me home, God. I think that's Elijah's attitude, because look at uh, what happens uh, next. He says, for he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they want to kill, they're trying to kill me too. In other words, they're trying to rewrite history. They're trying to, to uh, eviscerate any sense that there was ever a belief in Yahweh God and just get rid of it altogether, and I'm the last piece of evidence. And so, so you know, he's, he's just having it. He, he says this twice also, by the way. God asked him twice, and he says this this twice. And, and the principle, I think, is this. If we really are God's friends, as Elijah is God's friend, then what disturbs him should really mess us up. Don't you think? If it bothers him, it should mess us up. So, you know, being a little bummed out by that, and when you hear the news or you, you, you get blasted with something, that's that's not so, such a bad thing as long as it's in the right context and it, and it takes us to the right place because God's friends will be messed up by what God's friends. You see, what, what we're seeing here is Elijah's not some kind of prophetic wacko who th- suddenly discovers, oh my word, this isn't working, I can't handle it anymore, and runs off to God. It, it, it's more to the effect of, God, my heart's breaking for what you, your heart breaks for, which raises a question for us, Right? What is it for you and what is it for me that can really get us depressed and discouraged? Is it the stuff that depresses and discourages him? I'll just let that sit there for a second. Or, or, or is it other, you know, other stuff? My, my favorite TV show's second season's not coming out till next year, you know? What is it that really kind of bums us up? This is the third principle that, that our hearts will break the way God's heart's breaking. But look, I'm going to read a larger section here. I'm going to go back to verse, uh, halfway through verse 9 and uh, find this fourth principle or fourth lesson that we learn about living prophetic, prophetically. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty, and the Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altar, and your prophets put your, uh, put your prophets to death uh, with a sword, and I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. I, I just love this. Watch this. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face so he wouldn't see God directly, and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You see, I, the reason I just love this is the point is, is that God is not in the, he's not in the flashbang. You know, he's not in the big you know, earthquake and the fire and the wind. He's, he's not in that. Now, now, understand, you know, he's not in the signs and wonders, if you will. I mean, this is the biggest bang since the big bang at the beginning, if you believe that sort of thing. 
And they, but God's not any of that pizzazz. He's in a quiet whisper. What is that? That's God speaking his word. That's something we have every day of our lives. And, and please understand me, I am not putting down praying for healing, and I am all for getting healing, and, and sometimes that happens. But even in these days, in these Old Testament and Bible days, those are rarities. God doesn't just only show up when he does that kind of stuff. The big flashbang explosion changes everything. That's not where he is. The place where God most often is is in his word, the quiet whisper that whispers to your heart that goes deeper than the flashbang. In fact, here's the, here's the lesson. Know where to find God. In the midst of a culture, in the midst of a world that's rejecting him, you know, you and your family and your church and your friends, know where to find God. It's in the word. You, can know, you know you can find him there every single time. That's why we're doing Love This Book. Every single time you can find him there. In some way, shape, or form, or you know, maybe it's not exactly the answer to the question you thought, but maybe he answers a question that you need to be asking, that you haven't been asking, whatever. But that's where you can always find them. Maybe it's not the big pizzazzy, miraculous thing and the answer to prayer. Nothing against answers to prayer. But God is in his word, and that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest bang since the big bang. It's God's word that he's given to us, which we get to have a hold of every single day, which we're pretty rare in terms of the history of the world that we get to do this, by the way. And we have it right in front of us. It's a great time to be alive. But look at number, look at the uh, beginning of verse 14, the fifth lesson we learn. He replied, that is Elijah replied, he says it again, I am very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back and quit being a wimp. Oh. Maybe God didn't think he was a wimp. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. He doesn't even say, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I help you with that? No, he says, look, I got a plan here. You're going to get excited about this. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. So that's, that's like a pagan, that's a different country's king. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. So Israel is... Jehu is going to take Ahab's place. Um, And anoint Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha. Did you ever get those mixed up? There's two different ones. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel. So Haziel is going to come down and judge Israel. Elisha will put to death all who escaped the sword of Jehu, that's probably talking about the prophets and the false teachers, which that was the, that was the sentence in those days. Ooh. Verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel and all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. What's this saying? It's saying the battle really is the Lord's. It's, it, we don't need to get angry and judgmental no matter what happens next. Or what's happening now? Because we're not in a battle against flesh and blood, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. You've heard me use that before. If you haven't written it down, write it down this time. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We are not in a battle against flesh and blood, against people, not even metaphorically. 
We are in a battle of ideas, and God has moved in us, and teachings of God. That's what we're, we're wrestling with. And Paul says in, in uh, 10.5 of 2 Corinthians, he says, here's how you live your life. Take every thought, your thoughts and other thoughts that come to you, but mostly your thoughts to start with. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And then you will live differently and prophetically. And that's what it means to keep Christianity weird. And we need more weird by taking those thoughts captive that capture us and, and make them obedient to Christ. You see, here's the wonderful thing. I just love this about this story. I love this about a lot of Old Testament stories, but this is where it just comes out to me anyway. And that is this. Remember to thank God for his stubbornness. Ever thank God for his stubbornness? I mean, you don't usually put God and stubborn together because we think stubbornness is bad. But wouldn't it be a lousy deal if God wasn't stubborn about his redemption of his world? If God wasn't just stubbornly saying, no, you're not going to have that person, and he reached out and he grabbed you and me, you know? If he wasn't stubborn with Satan and saying, no, 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 I'm not giving up this kingdom. And not, you, you know, you can, you can squirm around and make noise for a while, but I'm coming for you. And look at, look at this 7,000, he says, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I was thinking about that, and I was remembering this week there was a new uh, Pew Research study that came out about what do, Christ, what do people really mean when they say they're Christians? 80% of Americans say, yes, I'm a Christian, still, to this day. I know it's hard to believe, but they do. Most of them live on the other side of the mountains. But um, 80% say they're Christians. But when you dig down and drill down to what they mean by that, is other people say, well, really, I believe in God. Or they say, I believe, and when you say, well, what do you mean by God? They say, well, I believe in a powerful force. I, I don't know if that's the influence of Star Wars, but that would be my guess. Or they'll say, I believe in a higher power. Okay. Still, 56% of Americans, when polled and asked, say they believe in the biblical God, the God described in the Bible. Of course, <laughs> even those people, they're sitting in churches, many of them, when you ask them, okay, what's the God of the Bible like? They'll say, well, he loves me all the time, and there's no judgment or no, you know. Again, it's unicorns and sheep skipping around the happiest place on earth. That's kind of the way it is. But there's still a vast majority of those 56%, around 40-something percent. Uh, you know, if you take the total, 40%. But, you know, over, over 50% of those 56% who say, no, no, I, I believe in this God. The Bible says loving. You know, Exodus 34 kinds of stuff. Loving, but judgmental, uh, but will judge us for our sin and so forth. But he's, he's always there. He's, he's, he's going to redeem us. He's got this obsession to redeem us. That, that's true. Now, Think about these numbers, 7,000. When David did his, uh, his uh, census that got him in trouble with God because he was trying to show what a great kingdom he had instead of what a great God God was. But in uh, 1 Chronicles 27, or 21 rather, David does this, uh, this census where he takes a census of all the people and he found that there were 1.1 million men who could carry a sword and use it. Okay, so that was how you de determined how many cool people you had in your society in those days. But if you extrapolate that out, estimates are that there were probably four to five million by this time living in Israel, Judah, that territory, okay? And God says, I've got 7,000 of them who haven't worshiped Baal. You just haven't found them yet, Elijah. But factor that in. I'm trying to help us to compare to when we live today, and it's not this bad. I mean, if, if you got 7,000 out of four million, that's like 1.18%. I just did that in my head. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> no. 
But if you, if you say, say the Ameri we got more than uh, 300 million people apparently in America today, at least, at least that's what they're guessing. Um, let's just take 300 million, you multiply that by 1.8% and you get 540,000 people. Surely with, 40, you know, with, with over 56% of people saying, I believe in the biblical God, there's more people than that in America. I think that's what God's saying. You are not alone because, number one, you got me, and you plus me makes a majority. But secondly, there's a whole bunch of people like you because I have been stubborn, and I will always be stubborn, he says, at redeeming my world and my people. You know, I came home the other day. True confessions of your pastor here. Came home the other day, and I was kind of down in the mouth from some news I'd heard. It was, I had had a conversation going into work, uh, and when I came to work with uh, the young moms that I work with, in the, we've got a great staff, and they're juggling, I don't know how they do it, but I say, hey, can I ask you guys a question? Are you guys going to put, you know, they all got little kids, are you going to put your kids in public school? How are you going to do that? And I'm, please, by the way, pray for Christian teachers in public schools, because uh, there's things being written, and they're being written out of curriculums, and being told they can't say things that are core to their belief. It's just it's too bad. But just pray for them. But I, I, I was kind of a little bummed by some news I'd heard, some new things coming down. And I went home that night, and I told Sharon about it. And I said, man, you know, of course, my world is, what, what are we going to do about those grandkids, you know? Maybe we should start a fund to help them get in a different school or something. Or would you like to homeschool again? <laughs> and then she said, Dwayne, remember the last time we babysat how exhausted we were? Yeah, oh, that's right. Um, <laughs> But um, she reminded me of a verse. Actually, I hadn't thought about this verse in a long time. I'm not sure I've ever read it. And uh, it's in Isaiah chapter 59. Look at this. See if this doesn't describe some of what we're feeling or what could be next. I don't know if it's going to be next. It could be this. Verse 14 of Isaiah 59, another prophet a number of years later after Elijah. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. The truth has stumbled in the streets or the public squares. Does that sound right? Truth's being rewritten, isn't it? The uprightness can, uh, the, uh, uh, and uprightness cannot enter. It's being rejected completely. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, if you don't play the game and you don't do something that is, you know, as if God's not in your life, you know, evil, then you're going to be a target. That's what that's saying. And the Lord saw it, all right, and he had displeased him, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, and his own arm, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. In other words, God made the move, and we know how he made the move. He made it in Jesus, right? He, he did that, you know, I... I was thinking about this and whole, this whole what's next series, this pack your bags. And I was, I was thinking about a time way, way, way back. I think it was when we were having one of our building campaigns because we started them like way back in the 90s, believe it or not. And uh, somebody thought it was a good idea to have a dunk tank at one of our gatherings and raise money that way with me on the paddle of the dunk tank. Yeah, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, whoever, I, I think it was our leadership team. Don't get any ideas. But uh, they, uh, they, they wound up joining me. They just didn't tell me ahead of time. Uh, but I remember sitting on there and going, next, you know. Instead of having, you know, this, this kind of good attitude about it, 
I think that God wants us to have an attitude about, hey, what's next? God, what are you going to do next? Because this is a great time to be alive. It's just if we're going to avoid some of the pitfalls that we see in the scriptures, we see, we're, we're concerned about, then we need to make sure that we're living prophetic lives, proclamational lives. As Jesus says, you are my witnesses. That's what it means to be a prophet. It means to be a proclaimer. It means to buy your living and by your mouth, be a person who says, yeah, that, that's my God. And, and, that's, you know, and, and it changes your whole attitude and changes your, and it should lift us up because we have a God who loves us that much who will come down and have those conversations with it when we're displeased with something because he is too, but he's not, he's not overwhelmed by it and who's stubbornly after us because he loves us that much. So I'm gonna put these five lessons back on the screen. I'm not gonna go through them because we're, we're done for the day. And uh, I'm gonna pray for us in these, okay? And if, you, uh, if you're a writer downer, you write it down. Uh, you go ahead, yeah, go ahead and take a, 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 a cell phone picture so you can think these through during the week, especially if you're a small group leader. See if these are true and push back on them, you know? I'm just kidding about the I'm right and you're wrong thing. Push back on them and, and discuss these uh, among yourselves. Is that what, you know, do we need to be thinking about for what's next? Because that's sure the lesson to me from the life of uh, uh, this w amazing man named Elijah who was living in a world that's not that different than what we're experiencing now, at least not in terms of a worldview level. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've given us your your word. Thank you for giving us Elijah and showing us how you can turn things around, you will things turn things around, but the biggest thing that you want is for us to be in relationship with you and love you and be in conversation with you and experience you, and you want us to share that with our families, and you want us to do that as a church. And I pray as we started out this message that this church would continue to be, I, I brag about this all the time, God, you know this, that this church will continue to be a praying church that you, will be a, uh, that you will be honored by hearing from us often and always. And that that would lift us into living prophetically regardless of what's next, instead of wringing our hands about what could be next. Putting our hands to the task of getting to know you better and better and experiencing your word, the place of the whisper of God. I thank you for being here today. I thank you for this church and the joy of being here. We love you, Jesus. And that's why it's in your name that we pray every week. Amen.